Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. great to be with you this evening. So um, if you don't know, we live stream these services. And um, so if you ever can't make a Sunday evening or you can't make a Sunday at all and you want to tune into Light Church, you can go online on the on the YouTube channel and you can follow along and tune into the service and you can catch up on the back end as well. But um, my wife put her back out uh, two days ago. So she's been lying around at home, kind of I've had to do all the housework. And uh, But they're at home right now because they couldn't come because she can't drive because of a bad back. And um, But my two boys are busy watching online, and I got a message from my wife just now telling me that the kids are watching. And so I just need to give, I don't, where's the, yeah, hello Judah and Caleb, they asked me to do that. I think they think we're like famous now because we've on TV. <laughs> but um, love you boys. Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then their eyes were both, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made some coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is good and beautiful and true. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself and your son Jesus to us through the written word. And we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit now this evening to reveal to us what you want to teach us, transform us, and make us more like Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, in 1904, revival broke out in Wales. It was known as the largest Christian revival of the 20th century, and it was one of the most dramatic revivals in terms of its effects on the population, on culture at large, and the countries to which it spread. On the 9th of April, 1906, the Azusa Street Revival broke out. It was a series of Christian meetings and revival meetings that started off in uh, Los Angeles, California. In the 1730s and 1740s, the first great awakening took place in our nation. The first great awakening was known as the Evangelical Revival, which was basically a series of Christian revivals that swept across Britain and North America. 
My favorite of all of the revival accounts in church history is probably the Hebrides Revival, which is a few little islands off the coast of Scotland. And in 1949, spanning to 1953, revival broke out in these little islands. Duncan Campbell, who was a pastor at a church in these islands, uh, he says this, uh, accounting for what took place. He says, with the force of a hurricane, the Spirit of God swept into the building and the floodgates of heaven opened. The church resembled a battlefield. On one side, many were prostrated over their their seats, weeping and sighing. On the other side, some were affected by throwing their arms in the air. God had come. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, the Jesus People Movement broke out across uh, our country, spreading into Europe and even down into Central America. There's a new movie that's just been released on this called The Jesus Revolution. I heard it's really good, and um, I'm sure it's great. You can look throughout church history, and I love doing this, looking at moves of God or revival or an outpouring of his spirit, and honestly, I don't really mind whatever you want to call it. Basically, when God arrives and things change, and you can see this happening all throughout church history, where there is a move of God or an outpouring of his spirit or a revival takes place where people's hearts as individuals are changed, renewed. They recenter themselves around the ways of Jesus and this pours out into society at large where society is transformed and changed. This goes all the way back to the first account of revival which happened at Pentecost in the book of Acts where we read about the disciples gathering together, the spirit of God pouring out and then the church of Jesus Christ being born. And there are multiple accounts of revival spread throughout the last 2000 years. On the 8th of February in 2023, a small university in Kentucky, we've heard about this if you have any kind of Christian following or you follow any kind of Christian accounts on social media, the Asbury, what people are calling outpouring, revival, move of God, it doesn't matter. There are people right now worshiping God as an outpouring of his presence has fallen upon the university. As you look at all of these accounts and revival history and moves of God, they always have a few things in common. Two primary things that every move of God, outpouring of the Spirit, or revival will have in common is this. The first is always a small group of people coming together with unity of heart, desiring God, and praying. Every single revival starts when a group of people come together and they pray. They desire God, they come together, and they seek Him. The second thing that every revival has in common is a recognition of one's own sin and a call to repentance. Recognizing that we fall short of God's glorious standard for Christian living, that we are sinful, and within that recognition, being drawn to a place of repentance. Every single revival starts with prayer and follows repentance. So what is the repentance that precedes a revival? Well, it's a repentance that emphasizes the moral cleansing of an individual's life and the desire to see society cleansed, transformed, and made new. Now, we've just finished a four-part preaching series on prayer, right? We've also just launched prayer rooms both in downtown and in Encinitas. At the end of last year, we did a preaching series on the Holy Spirit, And I just paused for a moment at the beginning of Lent, which is the series we're starting today, and I asked myself the question, God, what are you doing amongst us? 
What are you trying to make us aware of? What are you bringing to our attention? A group of people praying weekly in multiple locations around the city, an emphasis on prayer, uh, being made more aware of the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit, and now emphasizing this idea of participating in the ancient Christian calendar that we call Lent. Okay, God, what are you up to? What, what are you drawing our attention towards? I'm wondering, okay, God, do you want to see an outpouring of your presence, of your spirit, in our city, in our community, in our lives, in our family? Well, I want to tell you that I would really like that. Like, I want that. That's what I want. I want to see God move in our city. I want to see God move in my own heart. I want to see him move in my family. I want to see him move in our church, in downtown, in Encinitas, in California, in America. I want to see a move of God. I want to sign up for that. Like, if you gave me an option to attend church and have a cute devotional life or see a move of God, I'm going to choose a move of God. I want to see God move in our midst. Does anybody else want to see that with me? That's what I want to see. I desire to see a move of God in our time. Now, you might be like, okay, well, why do you want to see that? Because, you know, as long as we're good and like I do my thing, I read the Bible and I pray, which are all amazing, wonderful things, and I subscribe to all of that, why would we like to see a move of God? Well, let me give you an account from the Welsh Revival. In 1904, the Great Welsh Revival was marked by a passion for purity. Holiness was the consistent theme as 100,000 new converts rejected their sinful life, confessed Christ, and joined the church. But this change in their lives has a profound impact on culture. It was reported that pit ponies, which is basically the ponies that worked in the mines, like as they're basically laboring ponies, like just, they're probably not very cute. Uh, so the pit ponies, they could no longer work because they uh, couldn't recognize the commands of the converted miners who no longer swore, cursed, and beat the ponies. Like literally, the ponies stopped working. They did not know how to follow orders. The standard of living went up. Health and literacy improved, and money that was previously wasted on alcohol was invested in the home, clothing, food, and books. Pubs closed as abstaining from alcohol became the new norm. Magistrates and lawyers were left with fewer cases to trial as crimes diminished. All debts were all paid. The streets were peaceful. Cardiff Jail was left with no inmates. And on New Year's Eve week, there was no one arrested for drunkenness. And this is my best part of the whole thing. The police were employed to do nothing. Like, how great would it be if we could say that the police in San Diego were employed to do nothing? Because there was a move of God and everyone was drawn into holiness. Imagine sending our kids to a school where there is just a move of God and holiness and purity breaks out. Imagine like operating in the business world where there's just like purity of heart and good motives. We're trying to create jobs and build up the economy and, 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 and you know, look after people's families with giving them extra benefits. And what would it be like if we saw a move of God? Not so that we could like have a great worship moment. That'll be awesome and I'm down with that. But like what would it be like if we could see a move of God break out in our city and all of society transformed and made new? I think it'd be pretty great. Imagine what that would look like. Because we just need to look around to, you don't have to be very clever to know that our society at large, modern day culture needs cleansing. We need societies to be transformed, to be renewed. We need moral structures to be reinstituted around the ways of Jesus. Uh, we need a move of God. I really believe that. 
Now, one of the ways that we experience renewal or a move of God or outpouring of God's Spirit in our life or in our family and our society at large is when we turn to God and we repent of our sins and we pursue personal and corporate holiness. So that leads us to introducing our new series on Lent. This is this new series uh, as we kind of lead into this buildup from now until Easter is basically what is Lent? It's a six-week buildup to Easter. Now, I can't believe that we're like six weeks or seven weeks out from Easter. It's just, just quite amazing. But whereas Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus and, and his death on the cross and the victory that that provides for us, Lent recalls the season, the six weeks buildup, recalls the events leading up to and including Jesus' crucifixion. So we're going to give attention to that over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to do that by following some of the crucial points in the narrative from Genesis through Exodus going to the Passover. And our goal in this series over the next six weeks is that we would allow the Holy Spirit to come and minister to our hearts so that we would see um, ourselves be renewed around the ways of Jesus and that we would be able to give attention to the things in our lives that are possibly preventing us from experiencing life and life to the full. My prayer would be that we would have the confidence, the conviction, the awareness to remove things from our lives that prevent us from engaging with Jesus and enjoying the abundant life of Christ. So that's our goal over the next six weeks. Today, I've got the wonderful task from Pastor Benji to speak about sin. Now, it's really cool to speak about like, the love of God, the grace of God, but no one really likes to talk about sin. So thanks, Benji, for that one, if you're listening. You know, when we talk about sin in the church, we oftentimes feel a little bit nervous. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to have it, give it any attention. And we feel nervous because we feel like judgment or condemnation or shame or guilt is lurking in the shadows. My hope and prayer is that as we come out of this, even just this evening, it would be that we would be able to have an honest look at our own hearts, our own lives, the rhythms, routines of my heart, and that we would be able to have a renewed view, not only of sin, but of the beauty of repentance. And I want that to be a phrase that we go home with, the beauty of repentance. You see, because repentance is not something that like, kind of I'd use as like a tool that to beat myself up so that I can pay the price and like be right with God. Repentance is a beautiful thing, and I hope that this morning, uh, this evening, I can tell you why. Now, when we approach the topic of sin, and when we approach the topic of sin while looking through the lens of the gospel, the beauty of it is is that instead of shame or fear, we end up with freedom and salvation. Instead of condemnation, we can find communion, not only with each other in the Christian body, but also with our Father in heaven. And so here's what I want to do this evening as we kind of map out the teaching, is that I want to look at sin. What is sin? I want us to look at God. I want to look at how do we deal with our sin, and how do we heal from our sin? Okay, briefly, like kind of we'll buzz through that. First up, what is sin? Sin is, and I got this from the dictionary, which was printed a few years back, and I'll tell you why it was printed a few years back in a moment, but sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. So sin 
in the Christian context, simply put, is simply missing the mark or the standard for living that has been set by our Father God in heaven. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, why would God set a standard? Why does God set about a way or parameters by which we should live? Well, first up, we need to say that God does not set a standard or a mark so that he can control us. God does not put rules or restrictions or uh, structures in place, things that we need to live according to, morals or, or things that we should or shouldn't do, so that he can be in charge and be the boss of us. You know, we were sitting in our preaching meeting this last week, and uh, we were talking about this, and we kind of asked each other the question, and we gave it a little bit of time to think about it. Are there any commands in the scriptures, or anything that God says that we should or shouldn't do, that are simply there just because God wants to be the boss so that he, we just do it because it's what God says we must do. And it does not have any direct benefit or impact on me personally or society at large or both. And the reality is, is there is no, well, we couldn't come up with anything, and Stevie's really clever, like we couldn't come up with anything that, that showed us that there was an account where God just said, you need to live this way, and there's no explanation for it, just do it because I'm God. Like God's not trying to control us, be this domineering f- person or force or authority in our lives just because he's God and wants to hold us accountable to something that has no benefit. God is a creator God. And as creator, he created us. And he knows, because he is the creator, what will bring us ultimate satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment, both in this life and in the next. And so as creator, who is infinitely wise, who desires the best for you and me as a loving father, he sets about placing in our uh, life a mark or a standard by which we should live so that we can experience life and life to the full. That's why God does that. Sin is when we go against what God has ordained or planned or instructed for us and how we should live and how we should function as a society. Now, Ignatius says, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. See, when we sin, we indirectly say or directly act by saying, hey, what I believe will satisfy me or what is good for me is something other than what God has planned or designed. And so we go about doing our own thing. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God created in the garden a good and perfect world, a world that was good and beautiful and true. Adam and Eve, they push against what God says is true. They stretch the boundaries. They decide for themselves what is good and beautiful and true. They go against God's ordained plan. And that ruptures this perfect unity that the creator of the universe has with the created. We read in the account that God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. There was perfect unity between humanity and God because there was holy union. Sin enters the world and disrupts that holy union, gets in the way between us and God. Now, why does that happen? That happens because God is a holy and just God, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so rather than destroying humanity by staying in union with us, 
He separates us from himself, which is actually an act of love, so that he does not destroy us, and comes up with a plan, which is Jesus Christ, which we'll get to in a moment, that will bring us back to ultimate unity and perfection before him. But in the meantime, sin enters the world, our relationship with God is disrupted, because he is a holy and just God, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And ever since then, sin and the effects of sin have run rampant in our world, bringing about death and destruction. Oswald Chambers, he says that the root of all sin lies in the suspicion that God is not good. We are vulnerable and dependent, and in a corner of our hearts, we always suspect that we might be safer if we took care of our own needs rather than depending on God. Sin, therefore, creates illusions to protect us from our fears. And so go about sinning satisfying our immediate needs rather than trusting that God is a good God who wants ultimate fulfillment for me in both this life and in the next. And so we as humans, we have turned to our own means in order to satisfy the immediate desires and sinful desires of our own hearts. And we have also turned to our own means to solve the inherent problem of sin that we face in the world today through addictions and medications and entertainment, and largely today I would say through distractions, we have tried to mask the results and the effects of sin in our lives and in our hearts. There's one author that says that we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. As long as I can keep busy and stay distracted, then I won't have to come to terms with the fact that actually there are things in my own heart, my life, that I need to deal with. And so we distract ourselves. Or, we just pretend like sin doesn't exist. This is how we look at sin mostly as a society at large in 2023. We dismiss it. We dismiss sin. We say things like, you do you, or you, know, you live your own truth. We define truth for ourselves rather than allowing the creator of the universe to define what is good and perfect and true. And with everybody defining what is good and true for themselves, we've ended up with the distorted society where we have a decline in the moral structures and fabrics in our day. I found this fascinating. Um, they, when I looked up the meaning of sin, I got it from a, uh, an account of the Oxford Dictionary, which was a few years back. I didn't think anything of it. But this morning, Benji sent me a screenshot that he had got from someone else who was listening to his sermon in the morning service. And it was a search on Google, Oxford Dictionary removes words. And it says this, the Oxford Dictionary removed the word sin from its print because it has fallen into disuse and is not recognized by the younger generation. This is where we are as a society. We don't like to acknowledge the fact that there is, well, we're happy with good. Everything's allowed to be good. We don't really like things to be bad or things to be sinful or to acknowledge that there is sin even in our own hearts. And so with all of this disillusionment around sin, where do we actually go to from here? Well, I don't think that we need to give a lot of attention to sin and what is sin. Like we need to acknowledge it. We need to be aware of it. But more so than that, we need to turn our eyes towards God. In order to deal with the problem of sin, we need to look more intently on God. Because here's the thing, what you believe about God, this is what um, A.W. Tozer says, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Your view on 
who God is, his character, and how much he loves you, what your perception of God will be the most defining thing about you and about me. If we view God as a dictator who just wants to control us from his distant abode and throne and just kind of order us around, well, yeah, sure, who would want to approach a God like that? Who would want to pray to a God like that? Who would feel comfortable coming to his presence and repenting if God was like that? But if God is a loving God, well, that changes the whole game. Andrew Newberg, he says, contemplating a loving God rather than a punitive God reduces anxiety, depression, and stress and increases feelings of security, compassion, and love. Religious and spiritual contemplation changes your brain in a profoundly different way because it strengthens a unique neural circuit that specifically enhances social awareness and empathy while subduing destructive feelings and emotions. Hey, viewing a loving God does these things. The personality you assign to God has direct neural neural patterns that correlate with your own emotional styles of behavior. The way we review God, just our perception of who God is, actually changes the way that we live. So clearly God has hardwired our bodies to function correctly when we view him correctly. You see, and, and God comes so we can have laugh and laugh to the full. John 10 tells us the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have laugh and laugh to the full. And so God has a design for human flourishing, and sin is when we step outside of that design and control or have a desire to control our own lives and dictate what is good and beautiful and true. Now, I'm a dad. Give a shout out to the boys. They're probably not watching anymore. But (laughs) as a dad... We have, I have certain rules for my kids. Now, sometimes when you say like, don't do this, and they're like, why? And any good loving father is like, just because I said so. That's not really the only reason why we say that kind of stuff, right? It's actually because we know what is good and true for them as little mini human beings that is going to, one, keep them alive and safe, and two, help them to flourish and thrive. So when my kids want to eat donuts for every single meal of the day, I don't say, well, I'm a loving father, so do whatever you want. I know that in order for them to physically and emotionally flourish and thrive, donuts Three meals a day is not a good idea. They need a carrot every now and then. And so, sure, maybe they don't like the carrot, but you know what, it's gonna be good for them, and so that's just the way it is. Now, the point being, I, as a loving father, who is infinitely more wise than a seven-year-old little boy, know what is good for, knows what's good for him, and so I place about a structure and kind of parameters in his life. The same is said of God. Sometimes it may not feel good. Sometimes we don't want to eat the carrots. Sometimes we don't really know the whole big picture in the moment. But God sets about putting in place a structure, a way to live that provides for us life and life to the full. It's really just about trusting him. Now, the other day, we were in our light downtown building, and uh, it was after our Ash Wednesday service, and Grace uh, She's disappeared. She heard me preach this morning. She probably big gapped it. Um, but Grace gave our boys a, a scooter, and they're like one of those two-wheel dudes, and they like the, the floor in our downtown building is really smooth, and they were like gassing it around the, around the room. And I saw my one son run around a pillar, and the other son come around on the scooter, and I was like, okay, it's, it's happening. Collision. 
It's about to happen. And, and I'm just like, stop. And, and thank goodness one of them trusted me and stopped. It was his trusting that like, okay, dad's saying something. I need to trust him. Avoided a mass collision that otherwise would have taken place. Now, living a submitted life to God is like just hearing his voice and responding immediately and saying, okay, I'm going to trust you. So how do we deal with sin? Well, if God determines or or desires intimate and right relationship with us as a father, that's why he created us, that's why we have the garden, that's why in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 he says that creation was good. If he desires intimacy and relationship with us as a creator, yet he is also holy and just, and he demands not only our awe and our respect, but he also cannot be in the presence of sin, and sin is now, as a result of fallen humanity, lodged between us and God. How can God maintain his holiness, but also his love? Well, the answer is, is found in the last song that we sang, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The answer is found at the cross. In Ephesians 2, chapter 1, all the way to verse 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. We too, or previously, lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as were the others also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You were, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It is, a, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one may boast. So we are made right with God. The results of sin, which is our separation from God, is made right by the blood of Jesus on the cross as we are saved as an act of grace. John Piper, he says, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort of every pain. What has once What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and power and our only boast in this world. See, here's the thing. There is sin. We are inherently, by the nature of sin in this world, sinful. There is no one in this room that has not sinned. Our sin, however, does not produce guilt or shame or condemnation. By the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can come as one submitted to the victory of Jesus and inherit his victory receiving righteousness and cleansing before a holy and just God. It's an act of his love. So God is both holy and just and righteous, but he is also a loving father who's provided a way back into intimacy, which is found at the cross. And so we come to the cross of Christ and we substitute ourselves with Christ. He takes on our sin and shame. We take on his righteousness. 
John Stott says, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. And so we have the substitutionary savior who takes my place, pays the price for my sins, and releases me into a space of freedom before the Father. So how do we heal from sin? We come to the cross of Christ and we repent. Repentance is the key. In Romans 2, chapter 4, God's kindness, which is his grace, which is his salvation offered to us by the blood of Christ, is intended to lead us to a place of repentance. So we come to God, we receive his grace, his loving kindness, which leads us to actually wanting to repent, desiring to repent. And so a cry of repentance breaks out when we see God for who he really is and the the way, the the provision he's made for us in Christ. Now, repentance is not one of the words that we talk about much. It's, It's not something that we like to really do because it means that we need to acknowledge the sin in our own hearts and lives. But I want you to see this. Repentance was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the very first words that we have of Jesus in Mark's gospel, in Matthew, sorry, in, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter four, we read, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first thing Jesus says is repent. And the last record of the recorded words of Christ that we have in the book of Revelation is when he's speaking to the churches and he says this, he says in Revelation three, those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And so I want us to to recognize and and to see rather than being a secondary issue or like kind of a tag along or a fringe topic to Jesus, uh, repentance actually, it's actually Jesus himself that frames his whole ministry around the idea of me and you coming to a place of repentance. Now, repentance, what does that mean? It means to change. The best definition I've heard is Uh, a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of life. Oftentimes when we view sin and we think about coming right with God, we immediately jump to a behavioral change. But repentance is actually a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of life. And so it's heart transformation and a renewal of the mind that 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 leads into behavioral change. So repentance is when we have a revelation of our sin, the sin in our lives, and that revelation comes from God because he reveals to us what is good and perfect and true, and that revelation changes, that revelation draws us into a place of repentance, and when we repent, the things that we desire in our hearts and with our minds changes, and as a result of that, the way that we behave in the world changes. Make sense? Basically, we stop sinning. Now, I want to end today by talking about the beauty of repentance. Because oftentimes repentance can be like kind of a heavy, like I need to acknowledge my sin and say sorry, and that makes me feel really bad, and like Jesus is amazing, and, or like I'm new to this whole thing, and, and like, why are we talking about sin? Aren't you supposed to be like making us feel so great on a Sunday evening? We've got work tomorrow. I want to tell you repentance is so beautiful. Because we're not repenting just for the sake of it. We, we don't repent so that we can beat ourselves up or make ourselves feel bad. We repent because repentance gives us access to a fresh encounter with the presence of God. 
Let me say that again. We repent because repentance gives us access to a fresh encounter with the presence of God. So look at what it says here in, in Acts chapter 3. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Gone. Finished. Kaput. Your sins are gone so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Feel it like this. It's almost like a well that is like clogged up with guilt and shame and condemnation or distraction because we don't want to deal with that stuff. But when we repent, there is an emptying of the self, a relinquishing of all that bogs me down and keeps me like kind of within myself and separated from God. There is an emptying that happens that creates space in our hearts and our lives for an outpouring and an encounter with God's presence. So repentance is beautiful. It gets rid of the junk and allows space for the love of Christ to infiltrate our hearts and then change our desires and change our actions. And so we stop sinning as much as we did. So repentance is not just for the sake of morality or for behavioral change. The point of it really is so more of God's presence can break into our lives that we can enjoy him more and so that we can be transformed. And get this, every single time there is a move of God, it always starts with people praying, with people repenting, with the people who repent, the small group, the individual, individual change and transformation. And when a group of individuals who are changed and transformed by the power of Christ, what happens is corporate renewal starts to flow out into society. Every revival starts with individual renewal and that leads to corporate change. Individual renewal happens when we come to the cross of Christ and we repent. So if you wanna know why we need a recognition of our sin, why we need to have a cry of repentance in our lives, why we need to truly turn to God, see him for who he is, and enter into his presence by the power of Jesus on the cross, it's because repentance normally precedes an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. So I want to close with this image. I've got an image of a desert. It's going to come up on, is it, is it on the screen? I can't see the screen. Let's, let's get that picture up. Okay, we got it? Is it there? Yeah. Great. That's the Atacama Desert in Chile. It's actually the driest place on earth. So uh, I was told San Diego's a desert. Literally, I've been here two and a half months. It's rained for two and a half months. <laughs> you Californians have lied to me. There's, there's been a hoax this whole time, but whatever. This is the driest place on earth, the Atacama Desert. It's actually so dry and there's so little moisture in this place that when the astronauts like from NASA, I guess, want to go and do studies on Mars and what life on Mars is going to be like, they go to the Atacama Desert because it's so dry and um, arid. What's interesting, though, is that several years ago, there was a storm uh, in this desert, and the storm brought about seven years of rainfall in 12 hours, and something completely unexpected happened. When the much-needed rain came uh, at all at one time in the middle of this dry, arid desert, a thing called a superbloom occurred. And you can see in the next picture, is it up? That's the same desert. The superbloom occurred, and, and they didn't, what they didn't know is that underneath that dry desert was thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds of flowers. But it wasn't until there was a certain amount of rain that these flowers 
had the capacity to grow and thrive. They had all the potential in the world. They just didn't have the capacity because there wasn't enough rain all in one moment. These, flower, these seeds were lying there for who knows how long. It wasn't like there was an excess of you know, seven years of rain. That, that rain was going to come over the next seven years. Those flowers just weren't going to come. They needed the rain to all come at once. And I really kind of think this is almost like a prophetic picture for the church. You know, if you were to say to me, like, what image are you praying for for Light Church? I would, I would say this probably emphasizes a little bit of my heart. You know, why do we emphasize prayer and, and prayer rooms and repentance and the Holy Spirit series at the end of 22? Why are we, like, giving this idea of Lent and following the Christian calendar? I think it's because repentance normally precedes an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And like, yeah, we can do church and, and kind of attend and do all the nice things, but and like, like experience sprinklings of God's presence in our life and in our community and like just tag along and, you know, all good. I just wonder what seeds are lying dormant under the surface in our community that if we experience an outpouring of God's presence, not that something different would happen, just the capacity, the, the potential that we have will have the capacity to gain life and flourish. It's like, God, what could you do with our church? If a move of your spirit came, what could he do in your life? Honestly, I'm amazed by the caliber of people in Light Church. Like, you guys are amazing. We're doing all these crazy, awesome things in Mexico and Ukraine and like, it's awesome. What could God do if it's just like exponential growth all at once? I honestly think like Southern California needs that. Like we really need that. So I just want to say like, I want God. Like I want Jesus. I desire his presence to come in my life and my family and your life and our church and our city. Like I'm here for it, people. Like I'm all about it. And so we repent. And we're repenting so that times of refreshing may come so we can see the move of God in his presence. You know what's so fascinating? If you were standing in that desert and uh, you were there a week before the rain, and you told people there was going to be like a super bloom and you described the flowers, they would think you're an idiot. They'd be like, that's never going to happen. And then a week later, you'd be like, ha how do you like me now, you know? You could be standing at, at that, that chapel. You've seen that chapel at Asbury. Honestly, that's not a great venue. Like, they need to update that thing. And it's like, they don't have any famous worship leader leading them or like a great preacher. They're just a group of people got together that desired God and His presence was poured out. But if you were there in the first week of February and like someone spoke about a revival and they're going to close the streets because people from all over the world are going to be flying. I saw a picture of my friend from London. He arrived in Asbury. I'm like, what are you doing in America? Like, they, people are just flying in and they're queuing so they can get like 10 minutes in this like the thick presence of God but like that it kind of seems kind of random and if you said to people that was going to happen they'd be like nah not like it'll happen at like this other cool venue with that guy preaching or that worship leader God just comes where he's wanted like he doesn't care about that stuff and it's like, okay, do you want God enough to recognize your sin, come to terms with it, come before the cross, repent, and then receive an outpouring of His Spirit in your life? Forgiveness, freedom, life, abundance, and then let's see what He does. I just want to see us create an atmosphere through 
luck, radical obedience to repentance, seeking God. I just want to like be a people that attract the presence of God. Like if God wants to show up some there, I am hope he's like, oh, those people really want me. I'm going there, you know? Like their hearts are right because they're repenting and there's actually space there to like move. We experience, can we experience like a spiritual super bloom here that like nobody thought was possible? I, I think we can, honestly. I think You might be like, you're the crazy guy from South Africa like going on about the move of God again. Honestly, I'll be that guy. I'll cheerlead us in that direction. Can we like, can we desire it? Like that's what I want to see. But I think first we need a cry of repentance. So this is my prayer. Will you join me in praying that God will release a cry of repentance in our lives, that we'll recognize our sin, that we'll come to terms with the fact that we need a Savior to pour out His grace upon us, and then trust that God's Spirit will move. Amen? You can take any physical posture you want now. You can stand, you can sit, you can lean forward, you can kneel if there's space around you. Do it, do it, do it feels comfortable. It's going to invite us into a place of response. Responding to the word of God. You know, the scripture says, let's be doers of the word, not just hearers. And we can hear the word and then we can rush off to our lives. And that's great. If you need to go, that's, that's absolutely fine. But I wonder like what God could do if we just lean in a little bit. Lean in a little bit more. Come before him. Want him, desire him. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Not so that we can feel bogged down with, sin, with, with, with guilt and shame, but rather so that we can come to a place, place of repentance before the cross of Christ and receive an outpouring of your spirit that brings about life and freedom and joy. I thank you, Jesus, for the beauty of repentance. I thank you for the gift of repentance. I thank you for the result of repentance that brings about life and the life that Jesus promised us. And so I pray for courage and boldness now for all of us to come to terms with the reality of our own sin and then relinquish that sin over to the, at the foot of the cross. Receive the grace and mercy of Christ and the life that he offers us. Maybe as I've been sharing this evening, the Holy Spirit's convicted. As I said, sin, you just thought of this one thing that's just like recurring in your life. Or maybe as I've been sharing, the Holy Spirit's bringing your attention to some other area. Take a time now to just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for trusting in myself and not trusting in you. And I'm sorry for trying to grab control of my own life and satisfy immediate needs and desires rather than trusting in the life that you promise. I trust you, God. Say, I trust you. I trust you. We trust, Lord, that what you have for us is the abundant life that is good and beautiful and true. And so as children submitted to a loving Father who is also holy and just, we trust you. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Do not leave tonight feeling guilt or shame. Your sins are wiped out. You're free. Do that so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Holy Spirit, pour out a refreshing on your people this evening. A refreshing and a renewed view of a loving Father. A refreshing and an outpouring of your Spirit in our church, Lord God. Come, Holy Spirit. 
move amongst us, we pray. Father, we don't want to play church or say like little happy prayers. We come to you recognizing that we fall short and we ask for an outpouring of your spirit to refresh us and make us new. I'm going to ask the band to keep playing and, and, and you just do business with God in the next little bit. And Brandon will lead us into going into a time of just singing back to God. And maybe let's not rush this moment. We can just stay here and just enjoy the presence of God. I just pray, come Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.